Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains explicit language. The government might shut down next week, partly because Donald Trump refuses to help dreamers without getting his wall or other policy changes, Elise Foley reports from the Capitol. The Trump administration wants work requirements for Medicaid, so we talked to health policy reporter Jonathan Cohn about dog whistles. The federal government stood aside as states legalized marijuana under the Obama administration, but Attorney General Jeff Sessions is changing that. Nick Wing explains how the Justice Department is reasserting its authority on weed. And Jessica Schulberg reports that some clever lawyers are using Donald Trump's foolish statements to try to spring people out of Gitmo. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this is So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in the politics. Hello, this is Arthur Delaney, and my co-host Elise Foley is on Capitol Hill, where there is some breaking news. The government might shut down in like nine days. Elise, uh, what's going on? Yeah, so about a month ago, Congress passed a very short-term government funding bill and kind of kicked this whole issue of funding the government to this month. Um, And the reason they did that in part was that Democrats were asking for a whole bunch of things, including um, they wanted to pass some sort of protections to help DREAMers, um, young undocumented people who came to the U.S. as kids. And right now, um, we still have a week to go, but it is looking like things are going to shake out potentially the exact same way that they did last month, where uh, there's still no deal uh, on DREAMers. there is, you know, still no deal on all sorts of different other things, and there could either be a shutdown or there could be another short-term extension. Now, before they went on their Christmas break last month, it's it seemed to me that Democrats did not really put up a fight about anything. They They could have insisted on protections for DREAMers. They could have fought over how the tax bill might affect Medicare, and they, and they just – didn't do it, and dreamers and uh, you know immigration reform advocates were so mad, like so mad, yeah. and 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 um, called them the deportation caucus. And has the heat really turned up on Democrats from that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, I, it's hard to say the heat has turned up because the heat was already on them pretty hard. Uh, there have been tons and tons of dreamers coming to Capitol Hill uh, for months now, saying that you know please put protections for us into these bills. The thing is, Republicans say uh, it should be done separately, but all of the previous immigration reform efforts that would give people legal status uh, over the past um, dozen years have failed, and they have failed through various um, Republican refusals to hold 
votes uh, in some cases. Um, so there are a lot of reasons that Democrats and immigration reform activists think that this, putting it in some sort of must-pass bill, is really the only way to actually get something done. Um, we'll see if that's correct, but a lot of the same things that killed past immigration reform bills um, are still problems now, and that's why they want this to be part of a must-pass bill. In a sense, it's sort of arbitrary that we're saying Democrats have leverage in that, you know, whether Democrats make a stand could determine whether the government shuts down because Democrats do not control either the House or Senate, do not control the White House. And if Republicans could stick together, they could do whatever they wanted. If they could all agree on their policy goal, they could fund the government exactly as as they wish, but they don't. Uh, they've got guys who want what, like a bunch more money for the military. Are there any other Republican primaries that are jumping out to you as of Thursday afternoon? Yeah, I mean, the the Republican uh, outside immigration stuff is is not as much my deal, but they do just have such disparate views. A lot of them on government spending at all. Uh, that it makes it really hard for them to stick together. They have a lot of people who just don't want to vote for any type of government spending bill. And so that's why they need Democrats. In the Senate, they can't actually pass any bill unless it's in kind of strange circumstances, like they've done a little bit in the past, without 60 votes. So they do need some Democrats. But ultimately, uh, they can get things through with mostly just themselves if they can stick together. Um, but in the House, especially, that's that's been a problem. You're right. My the way I, that I phrased that question was sort of inaccurate because they they do need nine Democrats at least in the Senate. So re- Republicans want things on immigration um, like a wall, like Donald Trump wants yeah. funding for a wall, which uh, we have to all pretend he didn't say Mexico would pay for it and act like yeah. paying paying money for a ridiculous 2,000-mile-long wall is, is like, something we legitimately have to negotiate. And uh, and it presumably it's not just the wall. It's also, like, enhanced security, uh, other provisions. They've said for a while uh, that it's not, you know, that they don't want a 2,000-mile wall. So, um, you know, that, that wasn't, like, a big revelation this week that Trump said that. He's said that for a while. Officials have said that for a while. But, yeah, they, they did this week kind of have a little bit of progress in that they came to a deal, um, the White House and, and lawmakers, about what they wanted as part of this um, deal. So they agreed uh, at a meeting on Tuesday that they want, would do some sort of protections for DREAMers, not, you know, any detail about what that would look like, but some type of prote- protections while also doing some type of border security, including a wall, but also um, technology and things like that and ending the diversity visa lottery program, which um, Trump has repeatedly completely mischaracterized and um, lied about uh, how it works, Uh, but that's a topic for another time, Uh, and ending (laughs) chain migration, which is the term that he likes to use, that restrictionists likes to use um, for family-based visas. So they've come to a you know, broad agreement on that. The problem is that a lot of those things are really, really contentious, not just with Democrats, but with Republicans as well. So just saying, okay, we'll do these four things, uh, well, what is that going to look like? What would what, what DACA fix look like? What does now, ending uh, chain migration look like? So there's still a, a lot to be worked out. Ending chain migration looks like splitting up families, basically. Um, so they say they would still let people sponsor their spouses and or their minor kids, but 
you know, I think most of us would consider probably like I, I consider my brothers to be my pretty close family members. Um, so it would be giving up things like that. The White House did a th- an unusual thing. We saw this happen, I believe, once with President Obama, where they televised the meeting between the president and uh, members of Congress from both parties. And this came on the heels of a couple of weeks where everyone was calling Trump probably the dumbest person in the world. And he didn't like throw up or fall over. And people said, wow, Trump is really making a lot of sense. But the things he actually said about policy did not make sense, did they, Elise? Yeah. I mean, he sort of just seemed to be agreeing with whatever the person who spoke right before him said. So (laughs) there was a moment where uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, I believe, said something about they wanted a clean dream act, what that means uh, in, you know, Capital Hill lingo is something that was is only that passing, you know, that and not tie it to other things. And he said, yeah, yeah, clean dream act. That sounds good. And then uh, Republicans had to correct him and be like, no, that's not what we want. And the White House had to be like, well, when he said clean, he meant with these other three things. So he yeah, I, I don't know if I would say that it was like a, a amazing performance by him. He claimed that people wrote him letters to say that it was a great performance. Um, that was so weird. It was so weird. I, I often go down the train of the, like, imagine if Obama did this, but that that one did make me think of it, how strange that would be and how many people would be, like, this arrogant jerk. So, anyway. Oh, well, he, he said people sent us letters and reporters were like, well, what? who sent you a letter and how did the mail get to you from wherever it had been sent in less than nine hours? And it was a list of tweets and one of them was by Sam Stein. Really? Our former colleague, Sam Stein. Right. Uh, So that was lame. Anyway, um, so Elise, just to reiterate, it it looks like they're pretty far apart. And that uh, it looks like Democrats are are making a firmer stand this time than they did in December. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think that the the problem is that there might be another situation like there was last time that they can can pass a something with mostly Republicans if it is just a little short-term thing like they did before. So, you know, you can have a lot of Democrats take a stand and say, I won't vote for anything that doesn't protect dreamers, that doesn't do these other things like children's health insurance, um, all of these other proposals. But you need enough of them to stay together and do that. And um, it's not clear that they that anything has changed on that front. Uh, All right, Elise Foley, great reporting. Thanks for your hard work on Capitol Hill, uh, and we'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by special guest, my colleague, Jonathan Cohn. Good to be here. Jonathan, you're normally working from Michigan, so it's a pleasure to have you in Washington where I'm sure you're here for some something intellectual I, I, conference. I, I came here to be part of the podcast. That's a very intellectual exercise. You're here to talk to us about something that I think is very important because it's going to be a preview for actually a lot of policy fights that, that I think will become a, a major theme of this year. And it is so-called work requirements for programs run by the government to help poor people from starving to death, basically. And the Trump administration has said it will soon allow states to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients and Medicaid benefits 
it, it covers 70 million people, uh, poor people, by helping them pay for medical care. So it's a really important program. And Republicans have wanted this for a long time. They didn't get to take a big whack at Medicaid and their Obamacare repeal bill like they wanted to last year. So, Jonathan, what's going to happen? What Explain exactly what the Trump administration's going to let states do and then, and then what the states will actually do. Right. So uh, Medicaid is an entitlement program. The law says you are entitled to it if you fall into the following categories. Well, let's uh, – actually, entitlement program because Republicans say the word entitlement to make it sound like it's like bratty – Spoiled kids, right. right? Like, oh, you're entitled. Yes, Ooh. yes, yes. Uh, and remember, you know that uh, Social Security is an entitlement program, and yeah. <laughs> Medicare is an entitlement program. And you know the idea behind these programs—you like them, you don't like them, whatever. But you know the idea is that at some point, we as a country got together and said, "These people uh, are American citizens. They are they are contributing to society, and we owe them as a society." Uh, the following things, and one of them is healthcare. And uh, Medicaid, you know, was created uh, to serve people who are poor, and that includes a lot of seniors, it includes a lot of disabled people, uh, includes a whole ton of children. Um, and uh, the law says if you fall into one of these categories, then you know you are entitled to this uh, coverage. Furthermore, even though states administer the program locally. Because it is an entitlement, states cannot do screwy things to keep black people from receiving benefits to the to, from the program. Well, that's right. That's right. And, and Medicaid is a very – of the big entitlement programs, we talk about the big three, right? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Medicaid is by far the most complicated uh, because it is run by the states uh, – Mostly or a majority of money comes from the federal government, but the states kick in their own money. They have a lot of flexibility over who to cover. But then once they discover, decide who to cover, there are rules for how they cover them. And, and that's where this is all coming from, which is all the program is written in such a way to give states some flexibility. Right. But within certain guidelines. And this is basically a bunch of states saying we want more flexibility. Um, and in particular, they we have a bunch of states that are lined up and saying we want to say that if uh, we won't give Medicaid to people who could be working but aren't. Yeah. Um, they tried this. They've tried this before. The Obama administration made very clear that no, they would not approve those requests, uh, both because they thought it was bad policy, they, and you know we can talk about why a good or bad policy, and they also they thought it was illegal. They said their reading of the Medicaid laws they can't even allow that. I, I should explain why I mentioned African Americans because historically, I mean, going back to before the Civil War, states' rights meant um, enslaving people. And then in the 20th century, local control of federal programs meant uh, excluding African Americans from the benefits of those programs. Sure. And it was never, it's a way of uh, a, a, a racist policy that is in which nobody is being explicitly racist at the federal level, but that's the outcome. And that's not what's exactly happening here. However, I do think that with throwing words around like welfare, uh, which which we'll be hearing a lot of, um, that it's it's something that hasn't really been reckoned with and it's, it's, it's part of the policy situation that we've got. Well, yeah. I mean, anytime we get into the politics of welfare, there's a there's a there's a there's a racial element, and I was going to say there was a racial subtext to it, but it's often the text. But, uh, what I, and, I, and I, what I am not saying is that it's mostly African Americans or minorities receive who benefit from these programs. It's mostly white people, 
or it's a plurality of white people in a given state because sure, you know, most sure. people in the country are, are white. But that's that's the political connotation. I think that of is a lot the political of connotation. And I would go further to say I think there's a perfect you know there are intellectually defensible positions for why you'd want a work requirement that have nothing to do with race. You know I, you know it's because you support work requirements doesn't mean you're a racist. Um, but I think there's no question that politically. Uh, Republicans are going after this in part. You know, there is a racial subtext to the politics, and again, it's 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 not that subtle. Um, and I think you, you know, you mentioned about how the fight was shifting this year. I think uh, one way to think about this is they spent Republicans spent the last year, you know, running into walls over health care repeal, and I think they the, the lesson came through that that is not a politically uh, advantageous uh, position for them. This is not working for them. They are losing popularity. So now they're falling back on their more familiar tack, which is to attack welfare. And Medicaid falls into that. We're going to see it, as you know, if you've written on food stamps, all kinds of other programs. And I imagine their calculation, to the extent this is about politics, is that uh, they have a better chance of winning a fight on welfare than they do on health care. I, I think their chances in Congress are pretty slim because it's an election year. But what the Trump administration is doing, Congress is not part of the equation. So there's actually a strong chance of at least some success initially. Um, first, tell us how does a work requirement work for Medicaid? Medicaid is something that you go to the doctor and you have – having previously applied for Medicaid, the program pays for your doctor visit and, and treatment. Right. So, I mean, you know, this is a good question. How it would actually work in practice is actually a very good question. I mean, presumably what this means, you have to sign up for Medicaid. You're not automatically enrolled into Medicaid, so you have to go into Medicaid. So presumably if a state wants to do this, let's say Kentucky, which is sort of first in line of states that really want to jump on this, um, they, when they determine your eligibility for the program, somehow they're going to have to determine, are you able-bodied? Are you working? Are you looking for work? And that actually raises a very interesting policy question, which is, you know, we've learned from experience with other programs, that's actually a fairly uh, large administrative burden. Um, it's complicated for the state to check all things. They're going to have to spend a lot of money going through the background checks and whatever. Now, the flip side is it also makes applying for Medicaid more complicated and inevitably there are going to be people who will not even apply to Medicaid or will give up with the documentation even though they're still eligible for it. And so you get to a situation where if you impose these work requirements, inevitably what will happen is there will be fewer people on Medicaid. In some cases, it will be because these are people who could be working and, 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 and are not and they're being denied coverage. So for some people, it will be people who can't work, who remain eligible for the program, but it's become so difficult to sign up that they just don't. Because you will have to potentially provide evidence that you have applied for jobs at these places, including by you know, you're going to give the state phone numbers – of the companies that you applied for, you'll probably have to, uh, if you're if you're given benefits, go apply again. You know, recertify, and which could involve travel, um, and you know, that's not necessarily easy if you if you're poor and don't have a car or gas. So, I guess I'm just amplifying what you said. Uh, the the work re requirement itself is something that's kicks people off the program. I, I think work requirement really deserves scare quotes because it's basically if you don't have a job, we we kick you off after a period of time. Right. Now if you look at the order that the administration made and certainly you know they say, look, we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to hurt kids. Obviously kids can't work, right? You know, we, we don't want to hurt people. <laughs> <Not yet. laughs> That's right. You know, we don't want to punish people 
who, who have true, you know, have dis, you know, have disabilities are not able to work. Um, we want to take that into account. Interestingly, the statement from uh, the Trump administration today made a special mention of, you know, if people are getting treatment for opioid addiction, we don't want to be punishing those people either. Um, but you know, the devil's in the details, right? So you know, as they, you know. That's nice to say that they're going to let do that, but how are they in practice going to do that? And I think, you know, if you've been around long enough, if you've covered, again, and, and you've covered this more than I have in, you know, in the context of food stamps and other programs, I think we all know that when you impose these work requirements, a lot of this is just about, you know, this is a way to thin the rolls and you're putting up roadblocks and a lot of people are just going to lose coverage. And, you know, you can argue, well, that's a worthwhile trade-off or not, but it's important to be clear-eyed about what the pluses and minuses are, who's going to suffer, and actually and what's going to cost in the long run. It's good to talk about the the goal more explicitly. It is about reducing the number of people on it. That was the outcome they achieved when they uh, put work requirements on a program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Almost nobody gets it now uh, compared to the number of people who are eligible and uh, the number of people who received it in the past. And they said, well, that that's a victory. And they're pretty explicit about how kicking people off was uh, a policy win. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, look, I, and I should say, I mean, anyone who's, if you've ever interviewed people about this, I mean, there's a real, number one, there's a real resentment uh, from some people that, you know, when they see, hey, my tax dollars are going to pay for someone who's not employed. That resentment is real. It's out there. And, you know, some of that could be pure, unadulterated racism. Some of it has nothing to do with race. Some of it is, hey, I'm working hard. I'm making $40,000 a year. I'm struggling to pay my health insurance premiums. Why does somebody over there getting it for free? I've heard that. I can understand that. I think what's interesting is, you know, you look at that situation, right? So you have somebody making $40,000 a year struggling to pay for their health care who feels, you know, resentment towards someone getting it for free. You know, you can answer that by taking away the free health insurance from the person who's too poor to get it. Or you could go to try to figure out, well, what can we do for that person making $40,000 a year so that maybe they pay a little bit for their health care, but not quite so much. Work requirement is also sort of a, uh, a weasel word like entitlements in that it, it uh, automatically sounds so sensible, like, oh, people who can work should. And then it will, you know, the, the fact that you have to then determine uh, which slice of people who may be caretakers, parents, or disabled are actually supposed to be subject to this. Um, but it is, it is against the backdrop of uh, a much better economy. It's something that you know they could impose without creating too much hardship in the short run, which is, I think, what happened actually with, with welfare reform of the 1990s. And then the economy tanks, and it's a complete disaster. But they'll get sued. Yes. So, so I mean, they won't, they can't necessarily, they can start doing it, but they can't necessarily keep doing it. Right. So, I mean, the, the, again, you know, one of the reasons the Obama administration would reject these applications is they'd say, look, we read the Medicaid law that created Medicaid. This is, we can't do this. Um, the Trump administration is saying, yes, we can. That's a funny yeah. juxtaposition. <laughs> I just thought about that. Um, and we'll see. The courts will have something to say about it. I, I am not an expert in Medicaid law. I mean, you know, if you read the sort of proposal, it was written in such a way very clearly to make, you know, it's interesting. It was framed very much as we think this will improve health outcomes. And, you know, they were citing the data that, you know, well, if people work, they get better health outcomes. And, and that's their justification for it. And that, to me, I'm guessing was very clearly an opening bid on the argument they'll make in court, which is that, well, we deserve this. We should approve these because actually it serves the long-term goals of Medicaid, which is making people healthier. I don't think the data actually supports work requirements leading to that outcome, but that's, you know, that's what they would argue. All right. Jonathan Cohn, thanks so much for filling us in on 
the coming fight over Medicaid work requirements, a preview for the broader work requirements fight that we'll see all year. Yes, we will. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, everybody. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'd just like to take a moment to request that you give us a rating of four or five stars on iTunes, but... Please not fewer than four stars, or I will shut down the government myself. Thank you. Hello, we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Nick Wing, who is an expert on weed. Total, total expert. Thanks for having me, Arthur. So the voters in California recently legalized it, which brings the total number of states with legal recreational use to several. And then the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded a guidance that his predecessor had issued under the Obama administration that had basically told federal prosecutors to lay off on weed because it just shouldn't be a top priority. States are legalizing it. It's clearly not very dangerous. Um, so rescinding that guidance, what does that mean? It's a big deal. Uh, it's certainly a big reversal in the federal government's uh, the direction it was going on this uh, on this basically harmless plant. Right, right. I mean, as you say, uh, under the last couple of years of the Obama administration, they had pretty much decided not to uh, prosecute marijuana operations that were state compliant, that were complying with the state laws on on marijuana. So um, it, it really sent a message, I think, that it was a good time for, for investors to get involved. I mean, if you wanted to um, start cultivating and you applied for the licensing, you could do that. The, the idea that, you know, the DEA would come kicking down your door as of a dispensary that was in compliance and paying their taxes and following the regulations, that had sort of begun to fade. So you had I think as a result to the the lowered risk, you had people um, sort of getting involved in the business and uh, it, it was becoming more normalized and mainstream. And, you know, this really sets a tonal shift in the opposite direction, which is that um, U.S. attorneys, the, the sort of top prosecutor in each of these districts now has the, I mean, I guess they technically had the authority, but they now have really the blessing of the attorney general to go after um, 
state legal operations that are that are conflicting with the federal law, which obviously still believes that marijuana is a Schedule One drug like heroin and all that. That's that's a, a good point. The actual legal status under federal law for marijuana has never changed. They still insanely consider it as dangerous as heroin, yep. which causes many people to die, even though marijuana causes no people to die or, or really even be hurt at all. So have prosecutors indicated that they're going to make use of the uh, new regime and go after pot businesses or, or has the status quo prevailed for now? For now, the status quo is is prevailing. No U.S. attorney came out with a really aggressive statement um, sort of suggesting that they were going to take Jeff Sessions up on his his invitation to reignite these these um, federal crackdowns, but you know, I don't think people have a lot of good faith in prosecutors to not ever use a prosecutorial tool that they're given. Right, so um, I think it's fair for people to be wary. Certainly, more concerned than they were before. But I also think you know it's it's worth pointing out that. Um, U.S. attorneys are – they're sort of political positions. They are beholden to people in their state. Uh, they, they're beholden to not just the sort of residents of the state but also the state-based law enforcement apparatus. So various prosecutors at the state level, various uh, law enforcement agencies at the state level. So if they were to choose to, to, to really mount a crackdown in a, in a real way, you know, kick down doors, start trying to throw people in jail – They'd be running against a groups of people, I think, that are, are not really into that. I mean, I think – In other words, yeah. the country has changed a lot on weed. More people favor it being legal for recreational use and it could be a reputational risk for a federal prosecutor to try to make a name for his or herself by busting up uh, a state legal weed business. Right. And you know, as Ryan and I pointed out, Ryan Riley and I pointed out in the story, these people have political aspirations often. They want to run for statewide office. They want to run for Congress or for the U.S. Senate or, or whatever it is. And if you have a reputation of, of locking up people who are complying with the state law and doing something that's highly unpopular at the state level – it, that's going to make that more difficult for you. So, um, you know, as you say, I think there's this this question, which is, you know, can you put the genie back in the bottle? Are we over this as a society? Is is the norm now in a lot of these states that this is not something we want to focus on? And I think the experts and, and people involved in this say say yeah. And it's not just people. It's not just uh, customers or pot smokers themselves. It's actually the law enforcement. Officers are saying, look, we have a raging opioid crisis. We have all these other things to deal with. We have limited resources. We don't want to be spending our time and and the federal government shouldn't be spending its time cracking down on marijuana. One thing that I thought was strange and continues to think is strange is that Democrats in Congress were like, how dare Jeff Sessions do this? Because, you know, children with illnesses and troops returning from war need medicinal marijuana. Which I thought was just a you know true and all, but uh, a political hedge. Like, why are you trying to find these extremely sympathetic groups when marijuana itself is clearly harmless to beneficial? Why are you so afraid to just say it ought to be illegal? Because the fact that they're afraid to say that means it's going to continue to be illegal for a really long time. It seems like we're as far away as ever from some sanity 
in federal law. Yeah. I mean it's it's clear still that rightly or wrongly and I would say wrongly, people are wrong to think that there's a stigma. But there is obviously still – you know, legalizing marijuana, the idea of really being a, a marijuana reform champion at the, the federal level as a politician, there's a taboo there. And I think the polling would suggest that uh, that is the wrong read, that it, you can, you know, you can be a popular politician. In fact, it might make you more popular to be an outspoken champion for reforming these laws. Is it that popular off the top of your head or is that how far polls have swung in favor of legal marijuana? It's, it, I mean, in the last couple of years, it's come from you know a majority support being a big deal till every poll is majority support for legalizing uh, at the federal level and people support the state laws once they get passed. Um, so it's certainly a majority opinion. There have been polls. You know, there is still sort of a partisan divide. I think it's more popular among Democrats than it is among Republicans. But um, increasingly, we're seeing that even Republicans are starting to support this. So, I mean, certainly from the Democratic perspective, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. How – why isn't the Democratic Party really latching on and, be, and just – trying to establish themselves as the party of legal weed. The loudest senator criticizing Jeff Sessions was Cory Gardner, who is a Republican. Are Democrats going to let Cory Gardner and Republicans take the issue away? It, I, I uh, lump this in with their hesitancy on a whole range of liberal causes that you'd think they would just go for, such as single-payer health care. But no, it seems like they're, they're stuck in this pattern of needing to um, appeal to a center that has – long since basically disappeared when you've got like Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration doing this weird Archie Bunker stuff and being openly racist. It seems like a very strange moment that Democrats are a little behind. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, now seems like the perfect time to really establish themselves as not the party of old white squares, right? I mean, yet there there is hesitancy to step away from that. And, and I don't really get it. And I think um, it would be a huge benefit to the Democratic Party to, to really take up that mantle. But, you know, th they haven't made a, a lot of really politically adept decisions in the last couple of years. And how how many people have OD'd on marijuana in world history? Uh, we've been tracking this closely and the answer is still zero. Oh, really? Because once in a while you do see a story like, man, had marijuana died. Well, and it's like a it's like a TV station somewhere, right? I mean, you know, obviously taking drugs and dying while you're on them is not the same as overdosing on them. People right, do right. all kinds of stupid things, taking substances, you know, and, and as we've talked about with other drugs on this program before, you know, it's not always a direct causal thing. You know, just if you if you fall off a cliff when you're high on marijuana, is that because you were high? It's possible. People do dumb things, or did you get too close to the edge? And slip. Yeah. So, what is the marijuana industry doing? Have they just continued selling marijuana and been like, okay? Um, it, it sounds like for now, the the companies that are already sort of established are just proceeding as normal, and you know, obviously, they're keeping a closer eye on this. I think where it does have an immediate effect, and what what I think actually may have been Jeff Sessions's uh, real goal here is that. In an industry that's based on risk and speculation, this adds risk and makes people less willing to to sort of speculate. So, um, new entrants are probably getting seeing a harder time uh, getting loans. You know, some of the bigger risk averse financial institutions it's bad bad for capital formation. Right. Absolutely, and and so I think Jeff Sessions really just wants to make 
the legal marijuana industry sweat a little bit and I'm sure he's doing that. And, you know, whether or not this pans out into any sort of real enforcement action, he's at least done that and I'm sure that makes him very happy. A funny thing is the District of Columbia has legal recreational weed use. It smells like weed everywhere that I go, which is fine. And there are companies that will deliver weed to your house. Now, it's not legal to buy or sell weed, but the scheme that our legal weed industry is using is that you will order from them a cigarette lighter or a piece of rolling paper. Cookies. Yeah, or like a hemp wick. And they will drive it to your house and say, hello, sir, here is the product you've ordered. And uh, and here also is a free gift of a pile of marijuana. And I, I got to imagine if if the Justice Department did want to make a big fuss, they could just do it here. But – they don't seem that eager to, which is, I guess, is good. Yeah, I uh, I find those things a little bit fascinating. I don't know, I don't know how they work, and I guess they're 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 open to that. I guess we'll see what happens. I think the city would would not want Jeff Sessions meddling in their in their business like that, and it would probably be something that he would see some pushback on. But right, well, the, yeah, there'd be an amazing backlash because DC is very liberal, very democratic, very against the war on drugs. But you know they're right here, and the federal government has weird jurisdictional control over the city, and specifically, uh, federal police control little pockets of it all over. So it's a, an, an interesting, an interesting conflict. And regardless of your views, I mean, whether you think these companies are right or wrong, they're not paying the sort of taxes that they would be, and they're not facing the sort of regulation that they would be if we had a system of tax taxation and regulation. So ultimately, the city itself is seeing less of a benefit than it would be if if Congress would just stop uh, trampling on the on the rights of the city. I just want to say again, it blows my mind that marijuana and heroin remain in the same category under federal law. It's like the dumbest thing imaginable. I get, I mean, people like you who are very familiar and know the details of federal drug policies are bored of that. But someone like me who, you know, I'm, I'm less in the weeds there, it's just incredible. It's so stupid. It, it sounds so stupid, but people like Jeff Sessions very recently sort of still drew that parallel, saying that, that marijuana is only slightly less horrible than, than heroin. So it's clear that e- even as absurd as it sounds on its face, there are people who are still stuck in that mindset where they can kind of bring it – Bring themselves to to see a parallel. Yeah, th- didn't he once joke that uh, when he was a prosecutor, he went after like a Nazi or someone the because they went after the KKK because they were selling weed. Well, he thought they were. <laughs> I guess what his joke was that he thought they were decent people until he found out that they smoked KKK or that they smoked uh, marijuana. Which Hilarious is, yeah. joke! <laughs> Hilarious joke! All right, you got to be Jeff Sessions to make that joke. Nick Wing, thanks so much for filling us in on this. We'll be right back.
We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Jessica Schulberg. Hello. Jessica, you have news from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. What's going on? Correct. It's actually news from D.C. that relates to Guantanamo Bay. Oh, that's much more precise. I know. A group of lawyers uh, from a couple of human rights groups called Reprieve and the Center for Constitutional Rights um, joined together to file a legal filing on behalf of 11 prisoners who are still at Guantanamo Bay. Um, these guys have been there between 10 and 15, 10 and 16 years. Um, some of them have brought forth habeas filings in the past, arguing that their detention was indefinite and unlawful. Uh, it didn't really work. Uh, habeas corpus being the ancient legal principle that you can't just throw people in prison right. forever it's with no charges. One. You which would we don't... forget that it exists given how often we seem to do that. Yeah, oops. But anyways, these guys have a kind of a, a clever legal argument, I think. Um, much in the way that the lawyers who took on Trump and fought his travel ban targeting Muslim-majority countries, uh, these guys are using Trump's own statements against him to show that he is intending to act in a way that's in violation of the law. So in this legal filing, they refer to a January 2017 tweet um, in which Trump says, you know, no more prisoners should be transferred out of Guantanamo Bay. These are all really bad guys. Uh, they quote him saying that he's going to fill up Guantanamo with a lot of bad dudes. They quote him saying that this American terror suspect should be sent to Guantanamo Bay. And the point of all this is to show that unlike President Obama and President Bush, um, who did detain people for a pretty long time in ways that would seem quite arbitrary and indefinite, those guys had processes in place to review each prisoner's status and they would say, you know, we're going to keep detaining so-and-so pursuant to our law of war authority to keep people off the battlefield. Um, they were releasing some people. They said they wanted to close Guantanamo. And meanwhile, you have Trump here. He's not even pretending to have some sort of fancy law of war authority. He's just saying, I think these guys are bad. I don't need to prove why. I'm just going to keep them in there forever, which is blatantly illegal. And like you mentioned, Trump's words to have had this kind of effect mm -hmm. on uh, a legal dispute. Uh, groups have used Trump's words to defeat Trump in court. Right. So the the a lot of the legal challenges to the travel ban, they would pull out these really Islamophobic, horrible quotes from Trump to show that hey, it kind of looks like this guy doesn't like Muslims. And it just so happens that all of these countries targeted on his travel ban list are Muslim-majority countries. Could it be that this is a, a religiously motivated action? In other words, Donald Trump's statements, which may seem dumb and bigoted, are in fact not brilliant political strategy. Correct. If I was Trump's lawyer, as I think everyone has already said, I would tell this man to to shut the hell up. Well, we in the news have tried not to uh, sound keep, too keep analytical <laughs> when Donald Trump is saying something. Well, that's dumb. Shouldn't say that. Yep. In at least one arena, there are actually consequences for dumb things that Trump says. Now, the how many people are still at? Guantanamo, roughly. There's 41 people and out of there was over close to 800 at the height of the prison's population. So Pre President Obama wanted to close it down and just and got some people out of there, but that was the reason it didn't close. They had trouble sending them to other countries. Trouble yeah. trying them. So we in have the United States. we have 13 prisoners who have been charged in the military commission system, which is the war court at Guantanamo. Uh, it's a huge mess. The 9/11 case is there. It's now and it's. 
God, is it third year? Several years into the pretrial process. Things are not going well there. Um, but Congress several years back banned uh, any U.S. funds from being used to transfer Guantanamo detainees to the U.S. So we can't exactly move those guys to a federal court in New York. Um, the other problem the Obama administration was having is that there is a handful of these guys who are kind of known as forever prisoners. We don't have enough evidence to charge them or the evidence we have is tainted by torture. Uh, but we also think they're too dangerous just to throw back to wherever they came from or their country doesn't want them or they would be tortured. Um, but there are a number of people who were cleared for release uh, under the Obama administration who are still there. They just couldn't find a country to put these guys. So in this new legal challenge with the 11 prisoners, two of those guys have already been cleared for release through this insanely extensive interagency process that is so time-consuming. They were put through all the processes, told they were going to go home, and are now just sitting in Guantanamo indefinitely. If this filing succeeds, what could happen? Uh, so I think putting all 11 guys together in this legal filing is sort of almost a sh symbolic show of strength. They each will have to most likely proceed down their own habeas battle. Um, but the lawyers in this filing are basically saying like there is no other remedy for our clients to go free except by court order. You know, there used to be this system that was kind of a huge mess, but at least some people were going free. And now the only way that any prisoner is going to get out of Guantanamo, even if there's no reason to hold them, there's no evidence against them, they are not a danger to our country, the only way that they will leave Guantanamo under President Trump is if the court orders it to happen. If a court ordered it to happen, I, it seems hard to Im imagine Trump, uh, you know, not taking whatever action he could to prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. or it would actually be interesting if this did become a protracted legal battle, because in this filing, in addition to saying, you know, indefinite detention is illegal, and that seems to be what Trump is embracing, um, they also say that the the authority, the legal authority to hold these guys, is kind of kind of ridiculous at this point. They're being held under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, um, which, as our listeners probably know, was passed after 9-11 to help us get terrorists off the battlefield, um, either by killing them or detaining them. Um, over the years, there's been several challenges to the AUMF um, politically. People say, you know, can we really use this to fight ISIS? Is this really still relevant? It's very, very old. But there's never actually been a big court case challenging it. Um, so if this specific case does kind of make its way up, you might see lawyers having to actually battle whether or not the 2001 AOMF should still be a legal justification today. If Congress uh, rescinds the old authorizations for use of force, you know, they're, semi, they're quasi declarations of war, mm -hmm. does that affect the rest of the cases at Guantanamo? Because it does seem like Congress it could affects, do something mm -hmm. on the OMF. Yeah, it, it would affect everyone who's held at Guantanamo. I mean, C Congress would have to write in some provision, which I assume they would, um, that would continue to cover the people at Guantanamo because that is the legal authority we're using at this point to hold those guys. Okay. Jessica Schulberg, thanks so much for catching us up on Gitmo. Thank you. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Deloney, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Nick Wing, Jessica Schulberg, and Jonathan Cohn. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. 
And if you're still listening to this, please email so that happened at huffpost.com. I just want to know what kind of person is listening and like really paying attention all the way until the very last second. Thank you so much for being that person. Thank you.